Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Knock, knock. Who's there? Sam and Janet. Sam and Janet who? Sam and Janet evening, when you find your true love. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from artist, author, and filmmaker Miranda July. That'll help break the ice. She had a very funny cameo on the TV show Portlandia this week. Later, we'll speak with the director of the Oscar-nominated silent film, The Artist. Also coming up, author and comedian Sarah Colonna, a formerly forbidden fruit, and a dinner party soundtrack from musician Sharon Van Etten. No relation to the Van Halens, but first, the news. But this is a podcast, so let's skip it and go straight to fun. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. In just a few minutes, Gary Rydstrom, director of the new American version of the anime film The Secret World of Arietti, shares his favorite moments in sound design. Which he knows a thing or two about, what with the seven sound Oscars he's won. Later on, we take a taste of a formerly forbidden fruit. It's firm to begin with, but it melts in your mouth. That's the formula for eating happiness right there. That is true. Also coming up, we'll learn about a guy who set the Italian art scene ablaze. And not in a good way. Not at all. Way. And we answer your etiquette questions on this President's Day weekend with the help of a former president. Who is a lot livelier than I would have thought, actually. Yeah, and I'm still surprised we passed the Secret Service screening. Me too. Makes me concerned for our country. But first, as at any dinner party, let's start with small talk. All week long, you've heard these cultural headlines. Soul singer Adele triumphed in her return to music stage on Sunday, scooping up six Grammys and winning every category in which she was nominated. Sudden death of superstar Whitney Houston. She was just 48 years old. Three seconds, Lynn sizes him up, straight away three, buries it! <laughs> Lynn Sanity does it again! Now for a story you might not have heard, we are talking with Rehan Salam. He is a columnist for The Daily. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about at your dinner parties this weekend? In South Korea, there is new legislation designed to combat addiction to online video gaming. Really? Now, after every two hours you play an online video game, there's going to be a forced rest period of 10 minutes. And I think that this is an appalling violation of the civil rights of Korean gamers. How are they going to enforce this 10-minute rest period? How can they know? I believe they're going to try to embed it in the games themselves. Wait, game playing is enough of a problem that they have to, like, legislate a break? According to the foolhardy South Korean officials, (laughs) it is a problem because people are saying, oh, they're not going outside, they're not getting exercise, they're not socializing with non-orc demons. I see. Rather than interrupt people online video gameplay, I think we should interrupt people's uh, reality play, as I like to call it. Most people spend most of their day, almost all of it, in what you people call reality, <laughs> rather than in a wonderful, immersive online video game. I see. You know, that's actually what I was thinking. If the kids are probably going to see this break as a part of the video game, like an additional <laughs> challenge. I had to go out and pay money for actual dollars yeah, for bread. I was on level do the dishes. <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right. It's very, very troubling. And I think what we want to do is keep children as contained as possible <laughs> in their immersive online worlds. Oh, man. Rayhan Salam making enemies of all parents in South Korea. (laughs) Thanks for the small talk. 
Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our dry, slightly tart history lesson with booze. First, the history. Mm. This week, back in 1497, the bonfire of the vanities took place. Yes, now your guests might have read Tom Wolfe's book of the same name. Or the Tom Hanks movie, unfortunately. Yeah, sadly. But both of those showed up a few centuries later. Our friend Michelle Phillippe is here with the tale of the event that inspired the title. At the end of the 15th century, Florence, Italy wasn't exactly a barrel of laughs. It had been fun for a while. Back then, Florence was an independent city-state run by wealthy arts patron Lorenzo de' Medici. He opened his home to great painters, gave wads of cash to universities, and wrote poetry about it. But one guy kept spoiling the party, a Dominican priest named Savonarola. In fiery sermons to thousands of followers, he said Florence had become a den of corruption and sin and predicted an apocalypse that would scrub the city clean. He was right. In 1492, de' Medici died. Two years later, the French army invaded Italy. And right about that time, Italians started getting a brand new disease called syphilis. Savonarola became the new leader of Florence, and things got a lot less mellow. Case in point, in 1497, Savonarola had Florentines fork over what he called vanities, frivolous objects like mirrors, makeup, books, and art. Then he had it all torched. Several paintings by Botticelli burned. Some say the artist himself threw them into the flames. Savonarola's reign didn't last long, especially when he started aiming his fire and brimstone at the Pope. Convicted of heresy, he was tortured, hung, and burned on the same spot as his famous bonfire. So that's the kind of freaky history. And now it's time for the drink. On the line is Scott Baird. He's one of the partners at 15 Romolo, a bar in San Francisco's famously Italian North Beach neighborhood. And Scott, you heard the story. What drink does it inspire you to make? Something called the Agnello di Fuoco, which translates to the Ring of Fire. That is the best title ever. Yes, sir. So what is in this thing? We're going to work with an ounce and a half of cognac. Okay. The reason um, being? The reason being that during this guy's reign, Savonar, Savonarola's reign, uh, the French came in and made a little mess of things. Cognac so, is a French uh, liquor. Yeah. It's a brandy from a region in France. The Italians have theirs. It just doesn't usually come up to the muster of the, of the French. <laughs> As an Italian, I'll let you off easy on that. Well, because the other two elements are very Italian, and no one else comes close to them on these. Well, so, which are? Well, I've got a Vergano Americano which is fortified wine. It's almost like a vermouth. All right. Uh, and then some Vinsanto. Uh, Vinsanto is called the saint's wine because historically when it was made, they would put them in their barrels and they'd get everything going. And then they would pray because they never knew <laughs> from season to season whether or not it was going to work out. All right. Okay, and finally, you're going to finish it with a dash or two of the Angostura brand orange bitters. Um, serve it up in a nice small martini glass. And then finally, this is the best part. Yes. You flame the orange oil off an orange wheel. I was going to definitely be upset if this was not a flaming drink. No, no, there's flame involved. So you take a good organic orange, you slice off like a, a disc off the outside, hold the match in between the orange and the drink, squeeze the orange, and you'll get a burst of flamed orange oil. <laughs> 
So it's like an art, a little fruit flamethrower there. It, it exactly is that. Yeah, and if you get a good orange, you can get a good fireball. It's apocalypse in a glass. Yes. Wow. Citrus flamethrower, right? Rico. Here, Great idea. Yeah. Here's the thing. At a party, this should definitely be the first drink you serve, mm-hmm. and then hide the oranges and matches. Because otherwise, it's just going to be tipsy guests trying to make pretty fire in your dining room. Yeah, people, my this house is not a vanity. Absolutely not. If that wasn't clear. I need it for shelter. You just lit my vanity on fire. What are you doing? <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, um, we'll help you light up your dinner parties with our cocktail recipes. Yes. You can find them at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is Gary Rydstrom. He directed the American version of the Japanese anime film The Secret World of Ariete, which hits theaters this weekend. He's already collected seven Oscars for sound design. Next week, he's up for his eighth for the movie War Horse. He also did the sound for a little indie film called Titanic. I've heard of that one. Yeah. He's here with a list... That's a feast for the ears. Hi, this is Gary Rydstrom. I'm a sound designer for film, and I also directed the English-language version of The Secret World of Arietti. Here's my list of my three favorite sound achievements in movies. Number one, Wiley Coyote falling to his death, a near death. Uh, Treg Brown, who was the sound designer for those Warner Brothers shorts, his trick was he never used an appropriate sound. And since falling coyotes don't really whistle, the fact that he used this classic artillery whistle basically for a falling coyote cracks me up every time. The Roadrunner cartoons and the work that Treg Brown did for the sound for them were great use of real sounds, you know, ricochets, explosions, uh, early aircraft. Not musical or synthesized or fake. They're real sounds used in a very funny way. And this, the same sound happens over and over again in every one of the Roadrunner cartoons. Wally Cody falls, he makes this whistle, hits the ground. The timing of it's exactly the same. The sound's exactly the same every time. And I laugh every time. Meep, meep. Number two, the demon voice in The Exorcist, which when I was a kid, I saw The Exorcist scared the heck out of me. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. And then years later, I found that they recorded this actress, Mercedes McCambridge, and the really fun trick that I thought was ingenious, they would take Mercedes McCambridge's demon-esque vocals, play it backwards, and then have Linda Blair mouth in sync to those backward recordings played on the set. There was something really off about that. It really was so ingenious. It was one of those early memories of movie going for me. I remember how scary that was. Imagine you know, a demon voice. If I were to ask to do a demon voice, there's so many things we could do that would be laughable. But that, that scared me right from the get-go. So they got it exactly right. Number three, Darth Vader's breathing. If anyone were to come up with a list of the most iconic sounds in film history, Ben Burt probably designed nine out of ten of them. So Ben Burt did 
Darth Vader's breathing. And the first time you hear it in Star Wars, you already know this character. Something about that sound felt ominous and mechanical and inhuman and interesting. And what I like about it as a sound guy is it's a really simple sound. As you've been put a microphone inside an aqualung breathing device and recorded the breathing. It's been a good lesson for me over the years. If you think a complicated sound is going to be great, you're usually wrong. It's better to pick one simple, perfect sound. So one of my favorite was there's a pteranodon in the second Jurassic Park in Lost World, a pterodactyl pteranodon. And I was looking for the perfect screech. And I was flossing my teeth one day, and I had this Toms of Maine dental floss box, and I pulled out this floss and made this squealing sound that turned out to be perfect pteranodon scream, which, you know, maybe Toms of Maine can do something with the marketing, I don't know. <laughs> the guest list from director and sound designer Gary Rydstrom. He directed the American version of The Secret World of Arietti. It's in theaters this weekend. Yes, and Brendan, about Ben Burt, the guy who designed Darth Vader's breathing mm -hmm. that he mentioned, Gary told me that while he was attending USC film school, the students learned that Ben Burt created the sound of the lightsabers in Star Wars by recording the hum from this one film projector in one of the USC classrooms. Wow. So they would just go back there. <laughs> and run this projector wow. and just sort of listen to it. So that's what 10 grand a semester buys you. That is Access exactly to the it. lightsaber projector. Sure. There are film geeks <laughs> who would pay far more than that, my friend. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, after all that sound design, Rico ironically speaks to the director of a film that has almost no sound, yes. the artist. Directors, they want to kill me because a lot of them dream to make a silent movie. When the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, Sarah Colonna from TV's Chelsea Lately tells us the healthy way to deal with a breakup. I stopped at the nearest liquor store, picked up a bottle of wine, drank it, then I joined eHarmony. So inspiring. Blueprint for living. But first, our guest of honor this week is French director Michel Aznavicius. His spy movie parody, OSS 117, was a huge Euro hit. But in the U.S., he is best known for writing and directing the silent comedy, The Artist. It's up for 10 Oscars, including Best Director. And the first thing I asked upon meeting him was if I had mispronounced his name. No, actually, you did it very well. Uh, I've been some... Uh, worst experiences, actually. So, no, no, it's great. What is the worst butchering of your name you've ever heard? I think it's uh, one of the greatest actors in, in America and in the world, uh, Robert De Niro. <laughs> he gave me an award, and uh, when he called me, he said, Michel, as a chef, you should have a shorter name, man. <laughs> That's so. I met him like two weeks after, and when he saw me, he said, Hazanavicious! He spent two weeks to learn how to say my name, so it was very flattering for me. Like a good actor, he did his homework. Yeah, he's one of the greatest. So you didn't punch him out or anything? No, and he's dangerous. I've seen the movies. He's really dangerous. I don't want to punch him. All right, let me, I'll ask you some actual questions about your movie now. First of all, how tired are you of talking about silent films? You've become sort of like the spokesperson for silent films through this movie. Beyond what you can uh, imagine. I am really tired. The worst, I mean, 
When I speak to a journalist like you are, I mean, it's okay because I'm doing my job. The worst is when you, you go home and you're with friends or even with your family and they ask you the same question than the journalists. Given that, would you do another silent film knowing that you are now the silent film guy in the eyes of the world? No, I mean, I love to make this one and I had this movie in mind for many, many years. But I think if I make another one, it will be in many years because I don't want to be what you just say. I mean, the silent guy. I won't make that mistake. You said this was kind of a dream project for you. I know that you kind of parlayed your success with the OSS 117 movies to kind of get your dream project off the ground. Why a silent film of all movies to make? Would that be your like dream to get done? Because it's it's really special. I mean, the lack of dialogues and the lack of sounds allow uh, the audience to put so much of themselves, and they're really involved in the storytelling process. So they really they stuck to the character and they stuck to the story, and it's a great experience. I, I really wanted to share that experience, and I met a lot of uh, directors since I met the artist, and maybe eighty percent of them they want to kill me because I did it, and that was their fantasy as much as mine. A lot of them wanted to dream to make a silent movie. And I see this year, your movie is set in the 20s and is about sort of the silent, glamorous era. Hugo is set in the same era and is about the early days of filmmaking. Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris is also kind of about this idealized 1920s past. Why suddenly this kind of yearning for that era? I really, I, I never really thought about that, but Maybe because the industry is changing now, really. I mean, with the, the the way we screen the movie, the way we shoot the movie, the 3D, everything is moving so much. So maybe we want to go to the, back to the roots, maybe. So, something also that's interesting about all those, by the way, is that they're either s literally set in France, or in your case, a Frenchman is making them. What about France, apparently, evokes this kind of nostalgia, as they say? I don't know. My movie set in Hollywood. Of course. But maybe you feel guilty because of the the, the French fries. You, you called it the Liberty Fries. And maybe now you forgive us and you feel guilty, so you come to our country. I don't know. I have no explanation. All is forgiven. That's kind of a nice way of putting it. But, I mean, I, mean, I do kind of feel also Jean-Pierre Genet, who directed Amelie, there's a feel of old-fashioned filmmaking kind of soaked into his movies, too. It does seem like something that is in the French movie culture, but am I oversimplifying? No, I, I think if you see that because you want to see it. Because even Jean-Pierre Genet, is not, it, in Amélie Poulain, there's kind of a nostalgia. But I'd say he makes modern movies. But we produce, like, more than... 200 movies a year and we have all types of movies even bad movies <laughs> really yeah yeah i know it's hard to believe but uh, no i'm joking we we have uh, we don't make westerns that is the only thing <laughs> come on over and make a western that would be a quite a departure from this film i would love to make a western and i'm, I'm serious really is that maybe on your mind yes i mean it it won't be the next one but i would love to make a western sure who do you think would star I don't know, you have so many... No, really, you have so many great actors. I would like to see your star, Jean Dujardin, do a cowboy thing. Well, but he has to work on his accent, I guess, because it would be a very funny cowboy. <laughs> that could be the, the hook. That's the high concept, a French cowboy. Yeah, sure, and Uggy will be the horse. Yeah, Uggy the dog from the artist. <laughs> he can ride Uggy. Yeah, sure, 
That might kill Aggie, though. Yeah, maybe. And that might kill Jean as well. I mean, and that, ca <laughs> that could kill my career as well. But it could be funny. Never kill the dog. That's sort of a, a, a rule in Hollywood. Uh, we asked two questions of everybody on our show. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked, other than how to pronounce your name? Uh, where does that strange idea comes from in the age of 3D? Yeah, the, to, to make a silent film? Yeah, sure. I kind of asked you that. Mm -hmm. Did you ask? No. Well, kind of. I kind of skirted around it because I figured that that might be your answer. So if it was that question, I was kind of tired of your question, but I, I didn't say nothing because I'm polite. Yeah, that's very nice of you. Our second question is, tell us something we don't know. And that can either be about yourself, just something you haven't mentioned in an interview before, or a piece of trivia. Trivia? You want a trivia? Well... When I was preparing the, the, the movie, I watched Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. And I, I've seen that movie really many, many times. And I discovered something. If You know the movie? Yeah. Directed by Orson Welles. Okay. So the movie starts when uh, Kane die. okay? And some journalists want to know more about his life. So they screen the news from the march. Yeah, in the film, some journalists watch a newsreel about Kane's life. It's like a film within the film. And in the... It's a stupid trivia, but I tell you anymore. And in the screening room, in the darkness, you can recognize Joseph Cotton. Joseph Cotton, the actor? But he's actually in the rest of the film playing a different major role. The best friend of Kane. You so basically you can... You wanted a trivia. This is a trivia. That's pretty trivial. Yeah. But, but I'm enough of a film geek that I'm into it. So you're saying that like in this scene, you can see one of the lead actors in the movie being used as an extra? Exactly. Is that because Wells just ran out of money and couldn't cast some extras? I don't know. Orson Wells doesn't call me anymore. I don't know, but that's in the movie. So, Brendan, the whole time I was conducting that interview, mm -hmm. I was being filmed by Michelle's brother. Whoa, really? Yeah, it was weird. Huh. I guess for the movie's DVD release or something. Oh, that's interesting. I yeah. wonder if that will be silent, too. You know, the, the director's commentary. It'll be the first silent director's commentary. Yeah, with, with invisible subtitles. That makes sense. Uh, folks, you can send your comments via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Eavesdrop. Sarah Colonna, comedian and writer on the TV show Chelsea Lately, has a new memoir. Today we overhear her reading a dinner party worthy excerpt. Hi, I'm Sarah Colonna, and I have a new book out called Life as I Blow It. Get your minds out of the gutter. I'm on the cover of the book Blowing Bubblegum. This chapter is when I was in a relationship with somebody who refused to move in with me, and I got sick of it. It's a true story. I stayed the night with Ryan all the time, but he rarely stayed the night with me. He had a roommate, and I lived alone, so you'd think it would have been the other way around. I didn't understand what the problem was. Over the course of a few months, I realized that the reason he preferred to stay at his place was that it was his place. It was easier for him. He was comfortable. He didn't like change. That was going to be a problem. After we'd been together for more than two years, it was clear that he had no interest in living with me. We broke up. I was heartbroken. I continued working on my career. 
audition, stand up, make drinks for people, repeat. I just needed to stay busy. And the alcohol helped. One of our good friends had a birthday party, and Ryan and I showed up. The birthday honoree had been his friend first, so I didn't stay long. I had put a lot of work into looking good, knowing I would see him, so I just said I had another event to go to and got the out of there. There was no event, just my couch. I stopped at the nearest liquor store, picked up a bottle of wine, went home, drank it, then I joined eHarmony. Two days later, I got an email from eHarmony telling me that they'd found my perfect match. Ryan from Philly is your perfect match, my email read. I found it really annoying that they'd set me up with someone with the same name as my ex-boyfriend and from the same city as my ex-boyfriend. eHarmony didn't match me with a guy with the same name as my ex-boyfriend, though. They matched me with my ex-boyfriend. I immediately called Ryan and went off. What the hell are you doing on eHarmony? I asked him. What are you talking about? eHarmony just matched us up. You're Ryan from Philly. You're my perfect match, you stupid, stupid jerk. Wait, I just joined that. Wait, they matched us up? Yes, you dumb, dumb You shouldn't be on eHarmony. Have you seen the commercials? It's for people who want a relationship, people who want to get married. It's not for people like you. Well, what are you doing on eHarmony? Uh, to find a mature, healthy relationship. I never said I didn't want to be in one, so I'm not the big fat liar. I never said I didn't want to be in one either, Sarah. I just said I didn't want to move in yet. When I saw you at Sean's party, you looked so pretty, like you were going on a date. Then you just left and never said a word to me. I stopped at a liquor store, then I went home and drank. I got pretty banged up, then I went on the computer and joined eHarmony, he explained. That's the most pathetic story I've ever heard, I told him. I hung up and called eHarmony customer care. Yes, I need to cancel my subscription. Also, I need a refund. We don't do refunds. You set me up with my ex-boyfriend. I need a refund. Our computers match people based on interests and goals. If you and your ex are both on the site, we can't help the possibility that you might be matched up. Perhaps that's why you were together before. You had similar interests. So if you look at it from our point of view, we're doing a really good job. If you look at it from my point of view, I filled out a whole bunch of and I made it very clear that I wanted to find someone who can handle an adult relationship. Brian from Philly is not capable of that. He's a commitment phobe, and you set me up with him on your site that's supposedly all about people who want a commitment. That's false advertising. I want my $54.99 back. Sorry, ma'am. We can't refund your money. Sarah Colonna, comedian and writer for the TV show Chelsea Lately, reading from her new memoir, Life As I Blow It. You are listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media, which seeks males or females for friendship. Please, no creeps. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something that we don't, so if the topic comes up in conversation, we can hold our own. This week, our teacher is Michelle Higgins. She writes the Practical Traveler column for The New York Times. And she's going to get us up to speed on travel trends. Michelle, before you do, 
Where have you been lately? Well, the last place that I went to was Ecuador. Uh, I took my then 15-month-old at the time to Ecuador and uh, <laughs> saw some family there. My mother's Ecuadorian, and it was, you know, it was a pretty big um, trip for us, given that it, she was so young, and the flight is so long yeah. with a young child. But we had a great time. So, what is the secret? A Benadryl? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was, you know, contemplating that at one point in the flight while I was holding her on my lap, yeah. but, uh, but no, it's just a lot of activities and a lot of patience. Well, patience is an important attribute in a travel writer, regardless of whether or not you have a child. Uh, so let's begin. Share with me a few new things that are happening in the world of travel. Sure. One emerging destination is Cuba. Since the Obama administration has widened the kind of travel allowed there, a growing list of organizations have licenses to operate legal trips to Cuba, including National Geographic Expeditions, Austin Lehman, and the Center for Cuban Studies. There are also more flights mm. um, from more American cities to get to Cuba, so that's a definitely a hot destination. So to go to Cuba, before, before you'd have to go to Canada, right, and pretend that you are going somewhere else. So can you just fly to Cuba from the... From from the U.S. now? You can still go through Canada, mm. um, but that's not the legal way, right? Um, you, <laughs> you, To do it legally, you can um, now sign up with a growing host of tour operators that have permission to travel to Cuba, and this is generally on what are called people-to-people -people excursions. Huh. Um, there are people-to-people -people rules that require Americans to interact with Cubans on their trip, um, so the tours usually involve meeting with art historians, organic farmers, um, Wow. You know, other, other, yeah. So, so there, it's a different type. It's not just being on the beach with a cocktail in hand <laughs> kind of trip. All you know, right. you're going to, to actually see, you know, um, what Cuba is about. All right. Forget that one then. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So basically these people to people tours were designed to fulfill some legal requirement, right? Right. So the people to people tours were opened up during the Clinton administration and then it was, um, suspended under the Bush administration, and now the Obama administration has widened that kind of travel again. Okay, so what else? What are some other things that are happening in the world of travel that are kind of new? Well, airlines are increasingly offering VIP service to coach passengers who are willing to pay for it. So in June, JetBlue introduced even more speed, mm. which offers passengers who, depending on the flight, pay anywhere from 10 to $75 extra for a seat with more legroom, as well as a spot in an expedited security line. Mm -hmm. um, other airlines like United, its premier travel package, which starts at $47 for short flights, bundles things like economy plus seating with extra legroom, uh, a fast security line, and getting to board first on the plane. So, so these mini VIP packages are basically bundles of things people usually have to pay for separately. Uh, and they've given these bundles sexy names. Exactly. And some of the perks now that are offered um, for a fee, of course, are a way for coach passengers, you know, to get a little extra legroom, a little extra service that, you know, things that we don't really see in coach a lot Think, anymore. Things that we used to get two years ago for free. Right. <laughs> you know, I, for one, think they should charge people to put things in the overhead bins instead of the other way around. I think that would just make travel a lot smoother. 
Right. Well, the overhead bin struggle is a constant Ugh. dilemma, I think, both for the airlines and extremely excruciating for passengers on board as well. Yeah. Um, you know, my strategy is to take as little luggage as possible. But now luggage manufacturers are actually getting in on the game and ah. they are creating, you know, lightweight luggage, luggage with built in scales. Delcy's helium fusion light Whoa. has a uh, scale built into it so that you can see if you are going over the weight limit because now, you know, there's excess baggage fees that you have to worry about. I was going to ask you if there was something new in the world of travel accessories. And it sounds like this sort of thing is it. Exactly. There's even a vest, that Scotty vest, I believe it's called, that you can um, doubles essentially as your carry-on, where you can stick all of your gadgets and everything into the <laughs> vest and then take it off and put it down on security so you're not juggling all of your gadgets, and then you can wear it onto the plane. It's gotten that extreme. Wow. So pretty soon the ultimate is going to be a jetpack. And you don't even need the airplane. You can just fly to your there destination. You <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Michelle Higgins, thanks so much for coming by and getting us up to date on travel trends. Thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun. Man. So, Brendan, it sounds like between passengers wearing overstuffed luggage clothes uh-huh. and airlines squeezing in more seats, pretty soon people will pay extra to travel in the cargo bay with yes. the checked bags. <laughs> It'll be roomier. Yeah. But on the other hand, if people are wearing luggage clothes <laughs> yes. and the seats are squeezed tight, everyone will be better protected in a crash. That's true. <laughs> They'll be like human airbags. Right. Uh, folks, coming up, we learn about a formerly forbidden fruit. And believe it or not, we host a former president of the United States. Your tax dollars at work mm. when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, a dinner party playlist from Sharon Van Etten. She has a new album out called Tramp. Also, the greatest citrus in the world made its U.S. debut this week, and Brendan was there. But first, it's President's Day weekend, which gives most folks three prime dinner party evenings. Yes, it is a, a great opportunity to relax have fun. And commit faux pas. Yes. But don't worry, we're here to help. Every week, we invite a special someone to come by and help you behave. And to answer your etiquette questions, we are honored to be joined by the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Good day to you. Hi, everybody. Sorry to interrupt. This is Jackson Musker, the assistant producer. Quick note, Thomas Jefferson is portrayed today by Clay Jenkinson. He's a humanities scholar, and he hosts a radio show called The Thomas Jefferson Hour. In case you thought this was the actual president, uh, he died 186 years ago. He's a man of enlightenment, a student of human nature and gentlemanly behavior, and apparently threw a mean dinner party. Can you tell us about that? Certainly. Our new capital was in really a howling wilderness. Pennsylvania Avenue was mud streets. There were almost no boarding houses, no restaurants. And so I provided dinner parties two or three afternoons per week. And the quality of the food at the White House was so great that even my Federalist enemies begged for invitations to come dine with me. See, that is wow. a great host right there. Yeah, that proves that you knew what you were doing. And these had, a, these had a wonderful political effect because people who hated my politics would come because of the wine. And after three or four visits, they would be less partisan. They would be more cooperative because I had, sure. I had shown them the arts of hospitality, and that affected them. We need more wine in the White House today. That is true, and we could also definitely use your art of hospitality 
to answer our listeners' questions. So maybe we should turn to them now. Certainly. All right. Let's. This is from Mark via Facebook, one of the great states. What table manners, he writes, do you need to eat dinner with foreign dignitaries? Do you get briefed before each meal, or is there some more general rules? I had my own system, and it actually caused some controversy. I did not like the European system in which there was pride of place and a and there was a marching into the dining room and there the British ambassador would go first and the French ambassador would have to follow and so on. Huh. I thought that that was old world style and not new and so I had round tables installed at the White House. There was no head or foot of the table yeah. and we would stroll in and take seats wherever we chose. This actually led to an international incident <laughs> during my first term in which the British ambassador and his, and his wife were offended that they didn't get pride of place. Oh. And they came up to me and stiff as broomsticks demanded to know what was my protocol in the White House. <laughs> To which I replied, why, madam, it is pell-mell. <laughs> and this actually led to a, a memo of protest being lodged with the British ministry against the manners of the barbarian oh, man. in the White House. <laughs> so, so the, I mean, maybe you're not the best person to ask for etiquette. You're kind of blowing up etiquette rules all the time. Well, I was trying to show that we're a, a, a democracy. You know, our style here is equality and casualness. I, I liked an informal style, but elegant. Yeah. Our dinner party should be like... Like French salons, where the emphasis uh, was on the history of ideas and philosophy, literature, music, culture, rather than something as disagreeable and petty as politics. Man, I would love to see a president today say, I'm going to recast our White House protocol in the manner of the French. <laughs> see how far that gets him in an election. Well, you know, French wines were served at the White House from my, I brought them in, when I became president in 181, and they were served until the presidency of one of your recent men by the name of Clinton. Mm. He stopped that? He stopped that practice? He went American wine. Apparently he started bringing in Napa Valley wines, and yeah. I imagine they're good, but they certainly can't be as good as Bordeaux. <laughs> oh, all right. We're going to well, move on to the next question, because yeah. we have lots of audience in California. Yeah, we don't want to start another <laughs> war, civil war. So this, this question actually comes from a California Christian in Altadena, California. He asks, when sitting in traffic, you see a car or carriage. In your case? Yeah. Speed past your lane in hopes of crossing over into yours before the fork splits. What do you do? Guys, cutting you off in traffic. No, you certainly let him in. I mean, I wrote a letter to my grandson about this and said that the ideal person has natural gentleness and civility, but we aren't all born with that. So we should practice what I call artificial good humor. <laughs> if you are always polite, if you always let the jerk in ahead of you, if you always yield, not only will this shame the other person and encourage them to behave more in a more mannerly fashion hereafter, but mm -hmm. it also creates habits in yourself that mm. redeem your own life. So in every instance, I would urge your listeners to show artificial good humor <laughs> and do the civil thing even under provocation. Just I like pretend. that. It's, it's almost zen-like. Yeah. It's being the present, you know, positive thinking, even if you're feeling otherwise, and sure. eventually it'll rub off on you. It, and it, it, it rubs off on others too. You know, the person who then does rush into traffic ahead of you. That person will see this, and there's a good chance that he will become a better human being well, <laughs> by watching you be a good one. Well, if they actually use their rearview mirrors, which this kind of person may not. <laughs> they may not ever see your, your good graces, but let's hope. Uh, let, here's a third question for you. Uh, Harrison via Facebook asks, what is the best way to approach a woman who is far, far more attractive than I am? 
Well, every woman that I met was more attractive than I was. And <laughs> I, I was always an awkward and, and, and somewhat sheepish and diffident lover. But the way to attract a woman is to listen to her. Mm. Women like to talk. And when they are listened to, when you actively listen to them and ask the follow-up question or show that you understand what it is that they're talking about, this will overcome almost any defect in your physiognomy. But it's interesting you said that you were homely. The Thomas Jefferson, when I see you on, you know, in my billfold, pretty good looking guy. Yeah. <laughs> I was six feet, two and a half inches tall. I had red, uh, later gray hair, and I was freckly to the point that I couldn't be out in the sun much without getting burned. <laughs> uh, I slouched a little bit because I was so very tall. I was not a good-looking man, but I was a good-enough-looking man, and I had exquisite manners, and I think that makes up for a great oh, okay. deal. But I was um, on the $2 bill, which is, I understand, not much in circulation <laughs> in your era. I wonder why. Yeah. It could be because, you uh, know, not such a but looker. But you also, you didn't you invent Chicken a la King? I remember reading that once. <laughs> I did not invent Chicken a la oh. King, but I did, I did bring a, a pasta machine to the United States from Italy, and I am credited with bringing ice cream to the United States and baked Alaska. Well, See, thank I you. Th I thank you. <laughs> Mr. President, First also, all, I think that's the way into a woman's heart. Yeah. Actually, I think a man who can create um, a great plate of pasta. Well, I was widely admired in the way that a man who's not particularly virile can be admired. <laughs> I suppose you would say I was a metrosexual. <laughs> we appreciate said, that. All right, Mr. President, thank you for answering our listeners' etiquette questions and helping them learn to behave. Bless all of you, and I hope that you will have a sober President's Day weekend. Clay Jenkinson, channeling our nation's third president, Thomas Jefferson. Clay does this for a living. That's true. You can hear it on his radio show, The Thomas Jefferson Hour. And if you've got a question you want answered by next week's Etiquette Guest, call our hotline, a.k.a. the phone in my cubicle. Mm. It's 213-621-3554. And now, time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about the best part of a dinner party, the food. So, Rico, starting this week, what some are calling the greatest citrus fruit in the world is finally available in America, mm. and citrus experts are ecstatic. Ecstatic and full of vitamin C. Yes. And Very healthy. And acidic and ecstatic. Wow. And one of them is named David Carp, a.k.a. the fruit detective. <laughs> <laughs> That's a title I wish I could I, put I, on my door. I think the New Yorker called him that, honestly. All right. He's a journalist who's been sitting on the secret backstory of this variety of orange for 13 years, and he finally published it this week in the L.A. Times. Wow. The fruit made its debut on Wednesday morning at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, and that's where I met him. And so tell the people what the orange is called. Well, according to David, it depends. The formal variety name in Japan is Shiranui, named after a sea in the southern end of Japan. The marketing name in Japan, the name by which this fruit is most commonly known, is Decapon. In the United States, however, the only group that's marketing it commercially, at least so far, is calling this fruit Sumo because of its large size and bump at the top like a sumo wrestler's kind of bottom heavy. Well, I guess the fruit is considered to be, be sort of similar in general shape. And in fact, isn't its homeliness like one of the reasons it took so long for it to get to America? That's exactly right. Then the Japanese cotton on that had extraordinary flavor. It was both high in acidity and in sugar. It peels easily. It's completely seedless. It's large. I mean, I'm looking at this now, and it looks like an orange 
with a sweater that's baggy at the top there and a neck. Yes, it's a more distinctive neck. When you peel it, segments separate easily from each other, and there's very little what's called rag in the trade. So, and so rag is kind of like the white stuff when you're when you're eating an orange. It's like the kind of rindy stuff. Well, it's what is in your mouth when you're eating something like the classic dancy tangerine, which I grew up on the Christmas tangerine. That's got fantastic flavor. However, you're chewing for five minutes trying to think, am I going to spit or am I going to swallow? And that is rag. Whereas this, like. It's firm to begin with, but it melts in your mouth. So they had this fruit. They didn't think much of it. But then they're like, oh, my God, this is really easy to use. It's, it has a wonderful flavor. And people might, if they can get beyond the, the peel, the ugly peel, then maybe we can sell it. Was that the idea? Exactly. And it became more and more popular, so much so that it's the most prized citrus fruit in Japan, where, they re, where citrus is important. So there was, in Japan in the 1990s, when Brad Stark Jr., and citrus grower and packer in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, encountered it there. They brought it back legally through Sunkiss Japan and the California Citrus Clonal Protection Program. You can't just bring in budwood from anywhere because it might be infected with disease, and so there are pro prohibitions against that. He brought it back, and he told me, this is the most delicious citrus in the world. And I said, sure. I mean, he just had um, some budwood in the process of being cleaned up. It's a two- or three-year process. Budwood is? A stem that's used for grafting onto a rootstock, and that's how most fruit trees are commercially propagated, including most citrus. So Stark visited Japan, tasted the decupon, fell in love with it, and uh, decided to bring some budwood back to grow it. However, unfortunately, in the Christmas freeze, I was visiting him in 98, the Christmas freeze was just setting in. That was the last straw that drove his proud family company into bankruptcy. So for a while, it was unclear who actually had the rights until some heavy hitters in the citrus industry in, in Southern California got wind of this. They obtained the rights, and they started propagating the trees in secret. They thought they had something so special that they didn't want anybody to know about it, that they would just loose it on the world when they were ready and reap the rewards. And that brings us right up to the present moment, right? Because this week is the premiere of the Decapon, a.k.a. the Sumo, starting here in Southern California. That's right. They will, the production will be ramping up. They'll be actually sending as far afield as Houston, as the Northwest, and New York. All right. Well, without further ado, let's eat one. And as we're doing this, just tell me uh, what your, your, your trained citrus eye is seeing. And Well, for one thing, there's very little rind oil in the rind, so you could give it to your kid in the back of the, the car and let them open it up, and they could still tap on their digital device and not ruin it. Um, no seeds in this okay, one. And the fruit, this feels firm and firm. falls apart pretty easily. And look, the membrane is gossamer thin. I mean, that, what that, that correlates to very little rag. All right. So, put it in your mouth. Oh, my goodness. Pretty darn good, I would say. Outstanding. Outstanding. So you, you cover fruit, and you have so for years, and you research it. How big, a, how big a deal is this in kind of the fruit world? It's exciting to me because in 2008, I visited the world's largest collection of citrus in Beibei, China, where citrus is native. And I asked the head of the collection, who's a real expert, which is the most delicious variety in your collection? And he looked at me like I was asking him a dumb question, like, what's the capital of China? And he said, the Decapon, of course. How did you become such, uh, so interested in fruit? Well, let's see. I was a medievalist at university. I was a risk arbitrage trader on Wall Street. Um, then I got into certain things that we won't discuss. I guess the statutes of limitations have expired. But anyway, I grew up in California with fruit trees in my yard, and it was associated in my mind with romance and with wonder. So, Rico? Yeah? Aren't you glad I shared that story? 
<laughs> we almost made it through the segment without a pun. I couldn't resist. Folks, go to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, and see if you can resist sending us your comments about bad puns, for instance, and how they should stop. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've brought you advice from a dead president and news of the very latest fruit. There's but one thing left for a swell dinner party. Music. (laughs) That's right. What else? Yes. Singer-songwriter Sharon Van Etten just launched a tour to support her third album, Tramp, but she took a break to suggest a few tunes. This is Sharon Van Etten talking to you, and here is my dinner party soundtrack. She Keeps Bees is a band from Brooklyn, and we played shows together really early on. They moved away to England and came out with this record called Names in London. They're one of the most underrated bands that I know. And they have a song called Vulture. would be the rock song of the dinner. My next song would be Cass McCombs, Robin Egg Blue. Heather Burns went, went to the field nice relaxing feel to the song and, and it's it's really beautifully descriptive snake sat across a broken path but heaven knew better and thought what's done is done and I think that he is just getting better and better and better and they're the songs are really infectious like I had Robin Egg Blue in my head all the time. As soon as I heard it, it was stuck in my head. It was really, really catchy. Another song is John Cale, I Keep a Close Watch. I really like the strings in this song. Never win and never lose. There's nothing much. John Kill has that kind of a, I'm kind of a lounge singer, but I kind of don't care at all. And I know what I'm doing production-wise, but I'm not going to make it make sense all the time. It's really interesting layers and contrasts within that one song, and he's kind of like a begrudging lover or something. <laughs> I like that one. The song I would pick off my album, Tramp, would be the song, Leonard. There he goes, he finally closed the door, I turned the lock feeling I get really entertained by the idea that people could be listening to my songs at a party. That makes me 
smile and it makes me happy, but it's a total trip. You know, they were therapeutic for me and I wrote them to get through my own problems and I tried to write them in a way where other people could relate to them, but it's still, it still amuses me. <laughs> dinner party soundtrack from Sharon Van Etten. She's on tour now for her third album, Tramp. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Next week, Top Chef's Gail Simmons pays a visit, as does Toby Lehman from the band Dr. Dog. Jackson Muskers, assistant producer of the dinner party. Thanks to Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, Craig Curtis, Judy McAlpin, and Patty Hirsch. Bon appetit.